Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Film Daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, May 23rd, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news, and we're going to answer a question in the mailbag about our review writing process. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me at this podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Bad Omen. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Let's start things off with some serious news. Uh, you know, Hollywood has been shooting a lot of projects in Georgia, and Georgia is changing their laws. The state is becoming anti-abortion, and that is causing some ruckus in the way Hollywood does business. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so two projects have pulled out of uh, planned productions that were supposed to take place in Georgia because of this um, anti-abortion uh, legislation that's going through earlier this month. For those of you who don't know, the governor of Georgia signed what's called a heartbeat bill or nicknamed a heartbeat bill uh, that effectively bans abortion after about six weeks or so. And um, uh, I mean, this is an incredibly controversial thing. It's pretty much unconstitutional. And there's some theories that they know that it's unconstitutional and they're trying to get it sent up to the Supreme Court to try to overturn Roe versus Wade. It's a whole long, complicated issue that probably is outside of the scope of a movie podcast. But uh, it, it does actually have... And you probably should have heard of this the elsewhere. In that. Right, right. Yeah. 
yeah, so for a full breakdown of what all of that actually means, go elsewhere. But in terms of like what it means for Hollywood, this is interesting because this is these are the first two projects that have actually uh, done something about uh, reacted in this way to uh, this legislation. So Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which is is a new movie that is supposed to be reuniting the Oscar-nominated Bridesmaids writers Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo. They're actually starring in this movie as well. Um, this is a film that was supposed to be shooting in Georgia and they have completely pulled the plug on that state. They're looking for somewhere else to shoot this now. Same thing goes with a TV show called The Power that's going to be on Amazon Prime. And this is uh, comes from director Reed Morano, who directed The Handmaid's Tale, the first, I think, two or three episodes. She won an Emmy for her work there. And um, yeah, as soon as the governor signed this bill, uh, Morano in particular said, uh, we have no problem stopping the entire process instantly. There's no way we would ever bring our money to that state by shooting there. And the abortion part of this conversation, really, I, I mean, I think it's probably all three of us are on the same page that, like, let women control their own bodies. I don't think that part is uh, is controversial among us. But I'm not sure where you guys stand on this, because Hollywood seems sort of split in terms of how to actually react to this, because there are some people who, like Reed Morano and like this uh, this movie production, are thinking that pulling out of the state completely is the best way to send a message. And then there are others who have decided to stay uh, in Georgia and continue to film there. But they're going to, you know, like J.J. Uh, Abrams and Jordan Peele, for example, um, they have a, a show on HBO called Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country that is going to be filming there. And they are actually going to be donating 100 percent of their respective episodic fees for that season to the ACLU and uh, an organization called Fair Fight Georgia. They the two schools of thought are one, if you pull out of your productions out of the state altogether, it sends a hard line message that we're not messing around here. And then the people on the other side of that who are still um, trying to do some good in the world are, are arguing that to pull your production completely out of the state actually hurts the people in Georgia more than it hurts the legislators, you know, more than it hurts this minority um, group of people who have passed that are, are threatening to pass this law that that actually takes place or, or goes into effect uh, the beginning of January 1st of next year. But so, like on, on one hand, though, you're motivating those people of Georgia, the people, that, you know, on the ground that are going to be affected by this to, you know, rise up and tr- try to do something about this. Right. Yeah. And but it, it's sort of like in the meantime, you know, it, it hurts uh, people who are you know, in the the film industry who are living there, who are just, you know, freelancing and, and jumping from job to job, you know, those job opportunities are going away because these productions are pulling out and presumably more will follow. So it, you know, it, it ultimately hurts the economy of the state and it hurts. It, it's sort of like a, um, yeah, it's a tough, com- it, you know, it's a tough conversation to have because there's no easy answer here. It's not like, uh, yeah, it's complicated. Brad, do you do you have any thoughts on like the <laughs> Brad solve this for us now? What is the best no. way forward here? <laughs> I have I have a fifteen point plan to solve. It. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's really tough because you like it does suck that if you you pull these productions out, you know, a bunch of people are losing out on jobs and you're hurting the economy of these places. And there are a lot of good people uh, who live, you know, in in states like Georgia and Alabama and stuff who are passing these laws. Um, and so you can't paint with a real broad brush and be like, you know, just to hell with these states entirely. 
Uh, but at the same time, you have to have, you know figure out a way to send a message to you know the people who are behind these despicable bills to do it. And the best way to do it is probably through you know the the broken system of democracy and trying to vote these assholes out of uh, you know their their jobs. But it's it's a delicate line to 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 walk. Um, and I I don't know it's it's definitely going to be something that is difficult to play out here in the future. Yeah, one thing really quickly before we move on that I feel like is is probably um, uh, inexcusable at this point is for a company like Disney, who has a huge interest in the state of Georgia, and they've filmed a lot of their productions there. Most of the Marvel movies are filmed uh, in uh, Pinewood, Atlanta, or just outside of Atlanta. Disney hasn't even made a statement about this yet. So, you know, while people you can argue about the intentions of people like jj abrams and jordan peele or you know on the other side reed morano for pulling out here um it, at least they've taken a stand and, and let people know what their mindset is here disney who's this massive you know the biggest company in hollywood um has just stayed silent on this and i feel like that's a strange strange position to take for them i'll, I'll play devil's advocate here um, because I am Mr. Disney on this podcast. Um, I would say that those two productions you're talking about had probably not locked down and have money invested in Georgia. Um, it was easy probably for them or not. I want to say easy, but it was easier for them to cut ties and move elsewhere. Whereas Disney probably has a multi-year deal in Pinewood, Atlanta, probably has money invested, you know, has crew actually maybe even on retainer. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a more complicated situation. I definitely agree that that's the case. But back in 2016, when an anti LGBTQ bill was in danger of passing, Disney released a statement threatening to pull out of Georgia if that bill went through and it ended up getting vetoed. So they didn't have to deal with it, but they at least made the point that they were not willing to, that they didn't agree with the, uh, the decision that was potentially being made there, and they've stayed silent on this one, which is just strange to me. Okay, then I, I'm I'm done uh, defending Iger. You, you gotta you gotta uh, answer for this, Iger. We need an answer. <laughs> no, um, I don't know. I, I I hope they do something. Like I, I Hollywood is traditionally very liberal, and I I feel like we're all on the same page as you said with. Uh, being against this anti anti-abortion law um and i i feel like even though hollywood is a business and can save money by going to georgia there's motivation to not film there and um i, I feel bad for all those you know i i have friends that are in georgia in production jobs and stuff like that and i feel bad for them um but i feel like that should be more motive to get, you know, to rise up, get get the, you know. As Brad said, vote these assholes out. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> vote these assholes out. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Speaking of assholes, let's talk about Rotten Tomatoes and the trolls who have taken over the the um, moviegoer rating over there. We, we saw that with Last Jedi. We've seen that with uh, Captain Marvel. And uh, Rotten Tomatoes is finally... They're finally they've taken like over a year to to respond to this. They finally come up with a plan to defend against these trolls. Brad, what is it? Yeah, so they've they've already taken some previous measures to try and prevent this before when there was some review bombing of Captain Marvel and whatnot. But this is the the most direct action they've taken. 
as far as trying to truly put the kibosh on it. Uh, and basically what they're doing is they've made it so that you cannot submit a rating or review that contributes to the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes unless you can actually verify your ticket purchase through Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, starting today, users that want to contribute a rating to the audience score will have to verify their ticket purchase through Fandango. Um, since Fandango owns Rotten Tomatoes, that'll be kind of an automatic thing since they'll have evidence of you actually buying your ticket. Um, but eventually, later this year, theater chains, AMC Theaters, Regal, and Cinemark will also be participating by collaborating on some kind of ticket purchase authentication system with Rotten Tomatoes so that people who don't buy their tickets through Fandango can also participate and have their rating and review count towards the what will be called the verified audience score. And that verified audience score will also be used uh, not only on Rotten Tomatoes, but also on Fandango, which will be replacing their usual five-star fan rating system. Okay, so I guess my big question here is, like, what does this do, like, to films after they they leave theaters? Like, uh, is, like, you know, there's been so many movies that became cult classic on DVD or VHS or, or whatnot, home, you know, VOD, uh, that people don't see in theaters. If, if I can't buy a ticket... I can't account to that fan rating score. Like, does that mean that it'll it'll never change once it leaves theaters? I mean, for now, yes. They, they don't have uh, any system in place as far as how you'll be able to uh, rate a movie if you see it as a home rental or if you happen to buy it on Blu-ray or something like that. I would imagine they'll probably wait and see how this plays out and how well it works before they start t- taking it up to that level. But my bet is that once the movies that uh, are first being used with this new system, uh, which are Aladdin, Booksmart, and Brightburn this weekend, uh, once maybe those movies start coming to home video, they might have uh, something else in place that would allow you to prove that you, you know, bought a digital download or uh, you know rented the movie, maybe even through Fandango um, now since they have their own directed video service, uh, or maybe a proof of purchase or a barcode for a Blu-ray, something like that. Um, hopefully they, they'll be able to do that because, you know, I'm sure there's some people who don't see movies in theaters that would still like to provide, you know, a rating on Rotten Tomatoes for whatever reason. Yeah. And th- this whole is to com- uh, this whole system is to combat people from creating multiple fake accounts and rating a film low. We, we, we've seen that with, uh, you know, the movies I mentioned. Ben, do you think this is going to fix that problem? Um, it will certainly curb it, I think, because, well, at least until the trolls figure out some way around it, which I feel like is probably inevitable for anything like this. But I, I think it's the right move for Rotten Tomatoes to make, you know, to, to make it as difficult as possible for these people to uh, try to push their bizarre agendas on the world and, and trick you know, my mom who doesn't know anything about this, who might, you know, glance at a rating and just take it at face value. So, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Peter? Do you think that there that this is just a putting a Band-Aid on the Hoover Dam? Well, one thing's for, for sure. Hollywood is very upset over this. And Rotten Tomatoes is responding because, you know, at the pressure of them. And this does seem like a Band-Aid to me. I'm cynical and I'm thinking that eventually down the line, you know, People are going to be able to submit like an image of their ticket stub, and these groups, these they're very organized. <laughs> they, uh, you know, whenever we post anything negative about Zack Snyder or we post something positive about Last Jedi, uh, we tend to get an influx from 
the subreddit and stuff like that. Um, the, the, these groups are very passionate and I wouldn't – it seems like it would be – there's going to be some kind of loophole to get through this ticket verification system somehow. Maybe maybe once they expand from Fandango, uh, I'm guessing there's going to be some way, and I'm sure these groups will take advantage of that. But, uh, I mean, I applaud Rotten Tomatoes for, for trying. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. Like, how many people actually care about the audience rating of a movie that is no longer in theaters? You know, like, I, I just feel like, you know, at that point, just pay attention to the, to the critic rating and you'll have a general sense of what people think about it? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm i somebody who never looks at any of that stuff at all, so maybe I'm just coming at it from a place of, like... What, what uh, about I'm, a film like Kevin Smith's Mallrats, which I don't know how you fall on that, but, you know, that film was kind of eviscerated critically when it hit theaters. Nobody really saw it. Um, it I'm assuming if there was an audience score back then, it was low, and it, it found a big following on DVD. And I feel like it would hurt a film like that. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, that's that's a good example, I think, of something that's like old enough where, um, it, you know, if it, that if you haven't seen the movie yet, but you are aware that it has a cult following, then it doesn't matter what the rating is, or it shouldn't matter what the rating is. If you're interested in that kind of thing and you're, you know, participating in film conversations where people that you value are talking about, oh yeah, this movie was, is great for whatever reason, then just check it out for yourself, you know, instead of like relying on this, I don't know, I guess just rating systems in general, I, I sort of bristle at, but, um, but here's maybe the I'm, thing, I'm ben, an outlier. Yeah. People don't have enough time. So you have to make a lot of choices of both what you see and what you choose not to see. And I feel like those ratings help you choose. Uh, that's true. Um, I just, you know, if that's the the new world that we're living in, then the the downside of that is that movies like Mallrats, for example, are are just going to sort of probably fall by the wayside because there's such an influx of content and it'll always be there. And, you know, the people who want to find it will find it. And uh, and, you know, movies, uh, every movie will always find its intended audience. It's just going to be a matter of time now that there's so many other things competing out there. Okay, let's talk uh, really briefly about Universal Studios Hollywood. They are changing the Jurassic Park ride into a Jurassic World ride. And today they've released some details on that. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, this is pretty cool. So uh, Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, and B.D. Wong are reprising their roles from the movie in the ride. That is, you know, one of the things that they led their press release with. I don't really care about that. that much what, what does they're that just mean? Gonna be, they're just going to be on like monitors. I'm guessing. Yeah, I think they'll be on screens. Like if you've seen the um, the Fast and Furious uh, supercharged ride, then it's probably going to be a similar thing. Maybe they'll pop up in in the actual ride itself on some screens, or as you in the queue area, you know, they'll talk to you while you're waiting in line or something like that. Um, we don't know exactly what they're going to be doing. It says that they their characters quote will shed light on their interactions with the dinosaurs. <laughs> whatever that means. So, but the the most interesting thing to come from this is a bit of what seems to me to be new technology for a theme park, which is there is a Mosasaurus aquarium observatory section of this newly revamped ride. And the Mosasaurus is like the big under underwater uh, dinosaur that you saw in the most recent Jurassic world movie. And universal's team collaborated with industrial light and magic 
to create an area of the ride where you you are on the ride vehicle, you're sort of floating through, and there are screens on the side where it looks like that Mosasaurus is going to you know, burst through the glass and attack you or something like that. But the interesting thing about this is that, according to the press release, it says, the team also employed a series of lighting enhancements allowing the aquarium to intuitively shift from day to night, as well as visual changes to the environment during inclement weather, thus creating a variety of visual scenarios guests can experience based on when they experience the ride. So it sounds like, you know, if it's raining outside and you are at Universal Studios Hollywood, one when you, you know, board the ride vehicle and go into the bowels of this ride, the screens that you're watching this Mosasaurus swim around on, it's going to appear as if it's raining outside on this completely fake digital <laughs> story that they're telling you, basically, which is pretty cool. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. That's cool. But I wonder how many tourists are actually even going to notice that detail. Uh, that is very true. I can't imagine many people will be like, wow, this is amazing. Especially, I mean, maybe if you ride it multiple times, you might be yeah. able to notice the difference there. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure people will notice the difference between day and night because it'll be lit up differently there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think this is probably a first for the big theme parks. I can't think of a, a ride that does this kind of thing. I mean, there's I think Universal in Florida when they open Skull Island, there's a part of that ride that takes place outside the queue. And if it's raining, the ride vehicle will bypass that section of the ride. But I mean, that doesn't change. I mean, it changes the ride, but it doesn't change the, you know, the content of yeah, the, the ride. Content of the ride. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see if other theme park rides em- employ that. Um, we've been following the box office as the summer has been heating up. And uh, we we were all, I think, underestimating Men in Black International. And I'm not sure if that was on any of our summer movie wager lists, was it? I don't um, know. No, I'm pretty sure we didn't. I, I know I didn't put it in my top ten because I don't think it's going to do very well. Yeah. Uh, well, now we have box office tracking. Brad, were you were you smart in not putting it in your top ten? Uh, I mean, I think think so as of now the um the early tracking numbers for men in black international have it with an opening weekend of 40 million dollars um so that's not a, a huge number for a blockbuster it's certainly not a, a failure um but it's it is lower than what men in black 3 earned in its opening weekend uh, a, a while back so it seems like maybe it might not be as big of a hit as the studio is hoping uh hoping hoping which is um you know, maybe a disappointment because the the budget of the movie is apparently around 110 million dollars, and it'll probably make that back. But that's not including the ad campaign for the movie. Um, I'm betting that some of them, uh, you know, the bigger numbers will come from international box office. Men in Black's a pretty well known title. Chris Hemsworth is a huge star thanks to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and even Tessa Thompson, and she's part of it as well. Um, so there's a chance that the international box office could be better for a movie like this. Um, so yeah, I don't you know it's I, I feel like I I think I'm secure uh, in not putting this on my list. Well, forty million dollars opening means that it's probably going to end the summer with like a hundred to hundred and twenty million dollars. Do you think that's enough to make the top ten this year? I doubt it. And by the way, I just checked. I think Jermaine is the only person to put it in their top ten. Or no, I lied. Devendra also put it in the top ten. Put it at number. Devinder put it at number eight, and Jermaine put it at number nine. 
I have it in my dark horses, which I feel like is a comfortable spot for it based on these numbers. Yeah, it's also in my dark horses. So I, I feel good about that. Okay, let's move on to our last story for today. And that is about uh, Todd McFarlane's Spawn movie, which it looks like even though it has been casting, it might not happen. Then what do we know? Well, yeah, the the cast of this movie is in place right now. We know that uh, Jamie Foxx and Jeremy Renner are signed on to star. Uh, the legendary Greg Nicotero, who did makeup for shows like The Walking Dead, is is attached to do the makeup for this. But in a new interview with ComicBook.com, Todd McFarlane, who is the guy who created the Spawn character. He's a, a famous comic uh, writer. You probably have seen his name pop up here and there if you're listening to this podcast. He said, the money's sitting on the sidelines ready to go. I just need to get everyone that wants to put money in to shake their heads to the same script. As you can imagine, everyone has a slightly different version of it in their head. You just go and try to appease a handful of people while not giving in to what it is that I'm trying to do myself. Because if I have to change it too much, I'll walk away from it all. So, uh, you know, to me, Todd McFarlane, this is his this is supposed to be his directorial debut, his feature directorial debut. So he doesn't need this movie. You know, he's he's not like an up and coming filmmaker who's trying to get a chance to move on into bigger and better things. He's the creator of this intellectual property. And he and not just not just that he's like a huge millionaire. Like he owns like McFarlane toys. Like he like he could retire now and be fine for the rest of his life, his kids' life, their kids' lives, and their kids' lives. Right. Yeah. Exactly. He has this successful toy company. He's like one of the most recognizable figures in comic book history, probably. So I think you know it's not like he's hurting for cash or at least the opportunity. You know, he could be pulling some sort of like Donald Trump level scheme where where he he makes it seem like he has way more money than he actually has. But in any case, he's he's like the type of person that could easily find work elsewhere. It's not like he really needs this movie to happen. So the idea that you know if the changes are being forced into a script that he doesn't like, and he could just walk away. That seems like the best position to be in as a filmmaker. Um, But I I don't think this news is necessarily like a death sentence for this movie. It's just, this is the update right now. You know, he thought that this was going to be in production probably by now. um, Cause I remember him saying when this movie was first announced in 2017, like it's coming, get ready. We're going into production. And like, it's been two years and that hasn't happened yet. But, um, it seems I'm, like on, script... I'm honestly surprised he's not like self-financing this movie at this point. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, he he's convinced Blumhouse and and Jason Blum, the producer there, um, that he's the guy to direct this movie. So they're they're in business with him, and it's just a matter of like getting everybody to sign off on the ideas that he has in the script. And um, once that happens, it sounds like they'll be good to go. But I, I guess there's always the chance that this could completely fall apart. But um, I don't know. I, I'm not looking forward to this movie personally because I've never had any investment in Spawn, and just hearing McFarlane talk about his vision for this film and how. He's like proud of the fact that it's going to be a, a quote joyless movie and like that that really earns its hard R rating. And uh, it's just going to be this, you know, dark and gritty, badass superhero movie. I'm like, we've seen that so many times. I, I'm not really interested in this, but I don't know. Are you guys do you have any history with Spawn? Are you interested in this movie at all? I was a huge Spawn fan. I had the first issue. I went to the NASA Coliseum, uh, some comic convention back in the day, and I got Todd McFarlane to autograph my issue. And But I don't think the story of Spawn is that interesting. He's one of those characters, kind of like Venom, who was 
you know, I, th- I think another character that McFarlane worked on, right? Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Who, uh, like, just, like, looked really cool. Like, McFarlane knows how to make things look cool. If he can bring that to the big screen, I think it'll be good. But I feel like... I feel like I'm going to go see this when it hits theaters and it, the same night that Gambit and uh, The Crow reboot hit, it hits theaters. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like what that, a triple feature that would be. <laughs> I feel like that, that weekend is never going to come. Brad, what about you? Yeah, I when I was younger, um, I was into Spawn. I didn't, I didn't really read the comics, but I just liked the art and I liked how cool Spawn looked. And I had uh, some action figures, especially once the the movie came out. And you know, since I was a dumb kid, you know, I liked the movie even though it's terrible. Um, so, but yeah, at this point, I don't care about a new Spawn movie. Um, I like Peter said, it's the same thing with the with the Crow. There's maybe like five people out there who want to see a new movie. Uh, and like, it's just going to keep being talked about forever and will never get made. Okay. Let's dive into the mailbag really quick. Gokul G from New Zealand writes in, uh, he wants to know about our reviewing habits. Uh, he says, when you were writing a review, do you prefer to do it in silence or do you do it? Do you have music, the TV running in the background? I prefer to write movie reviews for fun on my blog. And I find that I can really concentrate, uh, I, I can only I can't really concentrate if there's any music or sound in the background, and he says he's loving Chris's advice corner. Um, okay, I think Brad, you've talked about in the past that you like working, you like writing with having like stuff you've seen playing in the background on the TV. Yeah, if I'm if I'm working uh, writing an article or you know uh, anything for for slash film or whatnot, I usually have something on in the background, whether it's uh, a TV show um or a movie it's it's definitely something that i've seen so i don't have to pay attention to it but if i want to take a glance at it i can i already know what's happening i just like having the comfort of background noise and every now and then i'll do music but i feel like i don't uh concentrate as well with music for some reason um i think it's just because i have to pay more attention to like the playlist that's going if there's a song that i don't want to hear i have to skip it whereas a tv show or a movie lasts longer and i can just keep it on for an extended period of time and not worry about it so yeah it's, it really doesn't uh break my concentration or or anything like that so that, that's usually what i'm doing see i feel like i'm the opposite of you music is like more background i, I don't have to pay attention to it so i don't like get distracted uh ben can you write reviews or how do you write reviews I think ideally it would be in silence, but if there's like, as you guys know, because off mic, we've talked about this a million times. It seems like every time we try to record a podcast, there's always some chaotic noise (laughs) happening, like right outside my apartment window that that somehow leaks into the mic. Um, So if it gets really loud outside, I'll throw on some music. But for me, it's always like instrumental stuff that I never have to pay attention to the words. Uh, I use like the Tron Legacy score sometimes. Mostly it's like the social network score. That's like the easiest thing for me to write to. Um, But yeah, for reviews, I feel like, I don't know, there's a reviews to me are like more important than like traditional news articles. So I feel like I have to do like I have to extra concentrate when I'm writing a review. (laughs) So um, yeah, I try to make it as silent as possible just so I can be alone with my thoughts and not have anything creep in there that that uh, distracts me in any way yeah i think the the social network soundtrack is like oh i love that it's the best soundtrack to work to it's like it's like made for doing work on a computer (laughs) yeah (laughs) um i know he wasn't asking about 
how we actually write reviews, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys do. Like when I'm in a film festival or I know I'm writing a review of a movie, I usually bring like a pad and I'll write notes during the movie, usually thoughts you know, lines that occur to me or, you know, observations I have and or, or ways that I am describing actors' performances or the film in general. And then when I get out and I get to my computer, I take those notes and I kind of type them up and I kind of play Mad Libs for a little while. Like, I, you know, I, I might try to put a bunch of them into a sentence. Like, if I have a bunch of descriptors about a movie, I might put that into a sentence that is like, you know, in the opening of the the movie review to kind of get people excited about if I am if I am excited about the movie to get people <laughs> excited about that that film. Um, how does it work with you guys? Like, Ben, how do, how do you write reviews? Do you take notes? Yeah, I, I bring a notebook with me and, and take notes when I'm watching stuff. A lot of times it's like specific lines of dialogue or uh, a lot of times we're seeing stuff that hasn't been released yet and doesn't have like a detailed breakdown on Wikipedia. So sometimes I'll just do like actual plot stuff like beats and, and things like that. So I can remember, especially in a film festival setting, when you're seeing multiple movies in a day, yeah, it's more difficult to remember Okay, this happened before this happened, or this led to this, or something like that. So uh, tell, tell I'm, I'm sort of tell me yeah. this. Like the hardest part of me writing reviews in a film festing film festival setting is to write the plot synopsis. Like I feel like that is the thing I have the most trouble. I, I have no trouble at all, you know, vomiting my opinion onto the, the the keyboard, but it's the having to concisely describe what the setup of the film is. That's the, the trouble I have. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, um, yeah, I guess everybody's different because that, that stuff tends to be pretty easy for me, especially since a lot of that information is already out there in like the film festival program and stuff. Um, and you sort of know going in, like, what's the hook for this movie going to be? And sometimes they hide that information and yeah. sometimes you're able to sort of reforge it in your review without really giving anything away. Um, but that part is, is generally kind of the easier part for me what do you think brad yeah i don't really worry too much about that i try to keep the plot synopsis as short as possible uh usually use the the extended description in the, the sundance guide online for a frame of reference just to make sure that i have you know maybe yeah, but th- those descriptions in the sundance guides could be like very abstract <laughs> Uh, not the ones that are actually in the sundance like guide um that were written by the people who chose the film for the the festival the the brief the much more brief ones are abstract but the other ones are usually a lot more descriptive um and so though i usually use those to inform like just the way that i write out the, the synopsis and, and recall it um so but yeah I, I think for me i think the more difficult aspect especially if it's a movie that i really like is just trying to convey enough of like what's great about it to make sure that other people want to see it because these are movies that you know, are barely going to be on a lot of people's radar when they come out unless they're surprise hits uh, or indie, you know, gems or something like that that get picked up by Fox Searchlight or, you know, one of the, one of the other, those other studios. So I just, I want to make sure that I convey, like, what it is that makes the movie special and why why it's good and really tap in, into that uh, and I put some passion into it, you know. And I think that that's, even when you love a movie, it can be difficult like that, to, you know, when people barely know anything about a movie and haven't even seen a trailer. Um, do you so, take, do you take yeah. notes during the screening? I usually don't actually. I'm not, I've never been a notes person when it comes to writing reviews. 
uh, I'm kind of of the mind that anything worth remembering that is important about the movie, I, I will remember that I'll take it away when I walk, uh, when I leave that theater um, and write the review. Um, I tend to have a pretty good memory when it comes to details in movies, uh, just because usually when I'm in the theater, like I'm, I'm in the zone and ready to pay attention and like want to absorb every detail. Um, so yeah, I've, I've never been, been a notes person when it comes to, um, taking them for reference for a review later. So Ben, what is the hardest part for you in writing a review? Oh man. Um, yeah, I think it's the balance of, uh, of like trying to yeah like brad said just convey why you like a thing or or the important aspects of the of a thing the thing that i always try to do in my reviews is get into like what the movie is actually about like uh not plot but like what it's trying to say thematically yeah um and sometimes for you know depending on the movie that can actually be a really easy thing like uh i don't know ratatouille is about creativity and and um you know believing in yourself and whatever but like some some movies and i can't think of one off the top of my head right now that like what you think the actual thematic material underlying the film is is a little bit more difficult to tap into and that is the thing that i always probably spend the most time on is like really sitting there and and thinking and and trying to find um textual examples within textural examples within the film to back up my claims about what i think the the movie is and what it's trying to say so uh that's the majority of my work in writing a review is is really like taking a step back and looking at it in a macro sense and trying to um you know get get a sense of what the thing is and then going into the micro to uh to justify why i think that yeah i i think some of the worst reviews and i think I mean, I fall into this sometimes, and I I know probably probably all, we all fall into this, is when you try to checklist it, and by that I mean like okay, here's the plot synopsis paragraph, here's the paragraph about the performances of the actors, here's the you know the sentence about the writing and the sentence about the score. Do you know what I mean like when when you start going down that path, I feel like that's when a review is almost worthless. When yeah. you approach it in that that way, um, yeah. but sometimes sometimes you're at a film festival and you've seen thirty movies and you have to write something. So that's right, when yeah, it's that just easier happens. to to fall into that formula when when you have <laughs> when it becomes like so overwhelming the number of things that you have to review in a day or whatever. But yeah, and then hopefully you know there's enough in the movie that maybe you can revisit write write about it again later. You know, revisiting it, looking at a specific angle, and really dig into that or something. Um, you know, whether it's in some sort of editorial or like a end of the year feature or something like that, like just highlighting a specific moment or a specific theme that you think comes across really well. So uh, I don't know for anybody who's just out there writing on their blogs and stuff, I would encourage people to not only just write reviews, but like get into the specifics of stuff too. Like that, that those kinds of things are really good for um, creating portfolios that you can send to other websites and stuff. If you're looking for work online is like, you know, everybody has a review of this movie, but not everybody has approached the movie from a certain angle. You know, maybe only you have, uh, have picked something out that, that stands out to you in that way. That is very smart. Um, And the other thing I would say to you is go into it asking yourself the question, what what is the purpose of this review? Is this a recommendation? Like when we go to two film festivals, our reviews are to highlight films that you would never have heard of and get those get people excited about those films. So you can't go as much into spoilers with those kind of reviews. It's more of um, 
giving people a taste. Um, and then we'll have reviews after opening weekend, like we call them spoiler reviews, where we dive into the details and like actually, you know, spend some time waiting through all the, the story points. And I feel like that's a much different review. That's for people who have seen the movie and like the movie or want to understand the movie more. And I feel mm-hmm. like you have to decide which you have to pick a lane, I think. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Okay, I think that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. If you have a question for the mailbag, you can send it to peter at slashfilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. And you can find more of all the stories we've mentioned on today's podcast in the show notes and linked on slashfilm.com. This podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please head on over to our iTunes page. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow.